Welcome back to the Reframe Your Artistry interviews. This podcast features an interview with Scott Ruscher. Scott is a poet, philosopher, fine artist, and a great many other labels that include and relate to being a kind and creative human. We spoke with him this summer through a video that was intended to be a precursor to a podcast interview, and we finally got the technology together to bring this to you in podcast form. This is an interview with Scott, who is reflecting in this interview on his career, his development as a writer, finding his voice, finding his rhythm, and also reflecting a bit on his academic career as he retired in June of 2020 as the administrator for the Arts and Ed program at the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Enjoy. Hi. Well, hello, Jess. <laughs> well, thanks for bearing with me, Scott. So what we're trying here in the Reframed Your Artistry world is something inspired by happy accidents right <laughs> where mm. we've been struggling with the flow of getting the podcast technology going yeah. in the meantime we've started to get to know each other and our worlds our art worlds through zoom and you had offered kindly to talk to me a few minutes about what inspires and ignites your thinking with writing mm -hmm. and so before we delve into that though i have to say you had offered a few minutes ago to wear your hat, your signature hat backwards, which I thought was a great juxtaposition. There it is. Juxtaposition <laughs> to what? Oh, sorry. <laughs> there it is, Jess, that's my hat. Scott, Scott Ruscher, the recently retired administrator of the mm. Harvard Arts and Ed program. Yes. Dismantling stereotypes, one moment. Oh, there you go. Um, I'm teasing, but um, thank you for gracing us with that moment. You can feel free if you can think better with your hat off. It might be a thinking cap and then again, <laughs> might not. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I've been reframing my artistry for a long time now. Well, I mean, I'm being well. facetious, but several years ago, I did reframe it, you might say. Um, I, I did a writing program many, many years ago in the late 1970s. Uh, in my early 20s, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. <laughs> big stuff, big stuff. Big, big, uh, big deal, right? The, uh, if you type out the initials of Iowa Writers Workshop, uh, the acronym is IWW. It looks like First World War, and that's really kind of what it was like, Iowa Writers Workshop. Anyway, it was fine. So I'll, say, I'll spare the expense someday for a summer workshop out there. <laughs> sure. I mean, it might be good. I don't know. I was too young. I, I should have waited. My uh, youth was youth was wasted on me and other young people. But anyway, uh, I had been writing a bunch of uh, poems. I had moved to Boston in 1976 after undergraduate mm -hmm. uh, experience in my native Ohio. Uh, I moved to Boston in 76 and lived a pretty exciting sort of mm, 
let's call it a countercultural sort of uh, existence in the North End in Jamaica Plain, working part-time in a natural foods factory and uh, enjoying the sort of, sort of multicultural scene around Jamaica Plain and, and all of that. And anyway, I got out to Iowa and I, I did okay for a while. And then I kind of fell into a bit of a writer's block. And so I, I produced, um, you know, sporadically, uh, poems, um, all, all the way through my twenties and thirties or whatnot. Uh, but sometime like in the nineties, it occurred to me that I could write in whatever style I wanted. Hey, I could say whatever I wanted to. I didn't have to listen to all these evil little voices that said, don't you dare write, you know, about uh, social issues in your poems. You, you can't write political poems. You're not allowed to do that. Everybody knows that's passe and dogmatic and just stop it, all right? Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of the, some of the voices at the Iowa Writers Workshop were saying that, but the gen in general, the style of the 70s and 80s was more domestic and tame. Was there and, a moment that shifted you out of kind of listening yeah. and endorsing all those other voices and just freeing yourself? Like, what did you do? What did you permit yourself to do? Thank you, great question. So you and I were talking about Faulkner and, mm -hmm. and, and the South and how amazing his, his fiction writing is. Uh, I had taken a, uh, over the years, I've taken a bunch of road trips, solo road trips to the South. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I started, uh, one of them I took, I think in the 1990s, um, I took a, a trip to uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I think I started out at my parents' house in Ohio where I was visiting for a week or something. And I, I, I did a sort of drive away car where you take somebody's car to a destination for them. You know, it, oh. it's a free trip. I don't know if they do this anymore, but it used to be a great way to get around the country. Yeah. And so I took this trip uh, over through Lincoln's uh, birthplace area in Kentucky and over to uh, Paducah, Kentucky, uh, an Ohio river town and over toward where the Ohio meets the Mississippi. I dropped a car off in uh, New Madrid, Missouri. New Madrid, not New Madrid, but New Madrid, which was eastern the- Eastern part, eastern part of Missouri? Uh, yes, the very eastern, right on the south of St. Louis, 100 miles or something. And New Madrid turns out, I started learning all these things at Lincoln's birthplace, at Paducah, which was a, town involved in the Civil War, and then New Madrid, which was the uh, epicenter of the largest earthquakes ever in American history in 1811 and 1812. And the, I, I hit on a metaphor down there, the earthquakes, the tectonic uh, plates um, became metaphorical for me. So I wrote, a, uh, I wrote a series of poems about this road trip. Uh, which ended up in Memphis, uh, trying to get to and trying to see Graceland, Elvis's mansion, and uh, looking at the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was killed. Mm -hmm. uh, 
King's Motel was not yet the great civil rights museum that it is now. And, and uh, Elvis's mansion was closed when I got there. So mm -hmm. I wrote about things that didn't happen when I got there. <laughs> and so I just started talking in a sort of casual, semi-ironic way about how everything's always closed and, and you know, there's Lincoln's replica of his childhood cabin and it even it is closed and it's raining like crazy and i walk off into the woods and i find an abandoned african methodist episcopal church in the woods and it evokes these stories in me like i try to imagine what it was like when people were having a service there and i imagine where the african americans who worship there went they probably took off and did the great migration to ohio where i'm from across the ohio river which was like the jordan river I, all these connections started crossing and connecting for me and i just said oh this is great i'm just going to start writing and making these connections all from the point of my own sort of narrative point of view experiential descriptive narrative point of view so i'm I wrote a chapbook of poems called Sidewalk Tectonics, uh, which was like the best title. Oh, okay. Best title I ever came up with, anyway. <laughs> because the, the, the central poem in that uh, chapbook had to do with uh, meeting a couple of homeless guys near the site of Martin Luther King's assassination. Yeah. yeah and the sidewalk was cracked and the pieces of the sidewalk looked like tectonic plates and there was cultural fragmentation uh you know kind of symbolized by these homeless guys walking down the street near the site of the assassination of a man who was probably their leader you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and it was just i started going just crazy writing about these uh, historical connections from a personal yeah. observational point of view. And I've kept doing it. So I don't know if any of that made sense, but that's what I've been doing all along. It's very, it's quite inspiring. And uh, I think you verbalize well what some of the people interested in kind of how I tend to root artistry, which is just noticing and expressing what is um i think you're willing to really look across angles in a nuanced way like you said the i love that imagery of the sidewalk tectonics because the, if we look closely enough if we're willing to look there's a lot of generative inspiration <laughs> and um yeah, yeah so so do you feel like though you have mentioned that a lot of your writing and artistry is inspired by being in time and place in these places that uh, light you up yeah do you find that that can stay with you and does stay with you as an artist now a little bit more rooted and grounded in the new england way <laughs> <laughs> it does stay with me i uh it takes me like about two years to get around to writing about an experience, but it's, you know, memories are so incredibly resilient and vivid. 
it doesn't matter how how much later it is it's like i'm still in that church near lincoln's birthplace i just it's like i'm still there and that was 25 years ago mm -hmm. um so that stuff is always there mm -hmm. i mean Am I going to be, how many people today have cited uh, Faulkner's line about the past not being dead? It's not even past, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the 212th person to quote him today on that one, but it's true. And uh, uh, so I've got a bunch of clusters of poems like that. Sidewalk Tectonics was a cluster of poems, uh, all having to do with that trip uh, to Memphis. Um, I've done similar clusters uh, um, uh, having to do m more recently with a, uh, a trip to uh, the state of Chiapas in southern Mexico. Um, I have uh, clusters of poems about a city in Colombia that I visited. I've, I've been, I've traveled a lot in Latin America in the last 10 years and um, during my vacation periods uh, when I was the administrator of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Arts and Education program. Anyway. Those perks linked to a privileged institution. Exactly, yes. I, I'm loving them. I, I just, I got the travel bug. Yeah. And I wouldn't let go, so um, yeah. Well, I promise not to take up much more of your time. You've been so generous in allowing me to get to know you and, and hopefully continue to get to know you if we ever get this podcast thing to fully come to fruition. It will. It's a matter of time, not if. We're um, learning now, yes. But may I ask you one more critical question while I have you? Please. I think um, you've, you've allowed in me to surface a question that I think is quite relevant to the world right now and I think relevant to artists who are willing to write and express and face things as you do. Um, I'll try to say this as articulately as I can but you know we AI years were real roundabout. No you're perfectly clear Jess no worries I'll understand it I'm sure. Go for it. Don't tell the lovely Dr. Tom Hare about my roundaboutness. Um, That's a Faulknerian characteristic. Try to tell the whole story of the world in one sentence. But anyway, yes. Go for it. More power to him. But so um, you've referenced kind of thinking of Faulkner as somebody to give you permission to write and think in a certain way regarding certain topics. And I think it is really a, a productive energy in the world for like self-disclosed um, white writers right now to at least empathically imagine the world of the Black American experience, the African American experience. Mm -hmm. Though um, acknowledging likely we do that imperfectly so, I think that that's something that you've shared with me that Faulkner did and was willing to at least try to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. So can you leave me with some inspiration in how you think Faulkner kind of did that well and inspired you and, and how you try to kind of keep that consciousness in your own work, though we can't share a certain lived experience 
somehow yeah. in in holding some of the weight of the culture in which we exist and thrive how do we honor other yeah. experiences well um you were earlier talking about how you loved the book uh, sound and the fury the sound and the fury oh. uh, um and i mean faulkner he was extremely i don't know is the word empathetic mm. i mean he was very empathetic and very he was he was like shakespeare i think in that he could be extremely uh, uh sad and empathetic and tragic but uh comic comical at the same time you know or, or within the same piece of work <laughs> and so but with sound and the fury i don't know maybe what i just said doesn't really relate too much no but. it certainly does an empathic being distinct from sympathy too because empathy trying to see it from another's point of view and bring that to the surface not just oh poor woe is not placating or sympathizing yeah go ahead you're doing a great job so in sound the fury you have i guess four or is it five uh main characters uh speaking their own chapters they each of them has his or her own 50 or 60 page uh monologue from benji the severely developmentally disabled. disabled yeah yeah he gets the entire first 60 pages and it's mm -hmm. it's from his point of view in his right. language you remember mm -hmm. it's it's pretty remarkable and and fairly hard to to understand, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't for me. I mean, that's <laughs> no, no. some people are getting more sense than Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been listening to it on audio uh, only this summer since I retired uh, because I want to get it all the way into my system. Kind of, I just it it eludes me so much. I want to understand every passage in the book. It's really very difficult to do, but. But anyway, so you have Benji, the 33-year-old disabled guy speaking. You have Quentin, the Harvard boy, uh, on the day when he's going to commit suicide in Cambridge, Mass, right up the street, mm -hmm. uh, speaking about his, uh, about his day and his relationship with his sister and with his roommate, Shreve, the Canadian, and his parents, and and how he misses black culture from back home even though he even though he has some kind of intrinsically racist attitudes about it which mm -hmm. apparently cannot be escaped i don't understand it mm -hmm. but uh, and then you you have jason the angry brother of quentin angry hostile jealous resentful and then you have um uh dilsey dilsey's chapter is the final chapter Dilsey is the maid of the house. She's the heart and soul of the uh, Compton. Is it Compton or Compton? Compton. Oh yeah, I forgot. I think so. I think Compton. Uh, she's the heart and soul of the Compton household. She's one of uh, 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 several African Americans who work on the sort of decrepit plantation or whatever it is where they live in Yakna Patapha County. Uh, and she is a heart and soul. She's really about the only sane person in the novel. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that that chapter is told in the third person, but still with incredible empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, she takes Benji, the disabled uh, son, to the ba Black Baptist Church, mm -hmm. and it's just like it starts with these beautiful descriptions of her in the kitchen that morning, getting things ready, um, dealing with the with Benji, and then taking him to the to the church for this uh, pretty amazing 15 or 20 page passage at the end of the book. Um, and I don't know how that inspires me. I just admire his ability, Faulkner's ability to, his courage, just the courage he had um, to, uh, to write about these people. And it was beautiful. Anyway, so when I was, <laughs> I don't know how I exactly relate to that as a writer, but it occurred to me that I, I was trying at one point to write about Charles Stewart, uh, trying to write a poem about Charles Stewart, the white kid from Revere who killed his wife to get insurance money uh, in a shooting on Mission Hill in African-American Roxbury. When the cops came, he, you may remember this, this is 1990. Yeah, yeah. Like a mythical Boston story. He blamed it on some black guy. Uh, the Boston cops went crazy looked, trying to track down the murder of Carol Damati, Charles Stewart's wife. Uh, the nurses at the hospital who treated Charles Stewart for a gunshot wound he inflicted on himself to make it look like he was a victim of a shooting too, <laughs> they apparently knew, like the mostly white nurses at the hospital knew, this guy killed his wife. Yeah. And the cops for months were chasing all over Boston. So I was trying and trying and trying to find a way to write about this because it was it was like a, a myth that needed to be put on paper or something. It was in the newspapers, but I wanted to explore it in my writing. And I it did it occurred to me one day, oh my God, I have the perfect personal experience to enter this story. And that was that a colleague of mine on the second floor of Longfellow Hall, Regina, uh, she was from Dorchester, African-American woman. She and I enjoyed talking about like racial issues in Boston. We just, I was looking for a connection to that community and she was looking for a connection yeah. to my community. Mm -hmm. It was just a really sweet thing. And and we we would joke and talk seriously both about all of these American social and issues of race and class. And the day Charles Stewart jumped off the bridge, she came running down the hall to tell me she had just heard about his suicide uh, after being discovered that he had actually killed his wife. She came running down the hall happy to hear that he had jumped off, even though she was a good Christian and all that. <laughs> she was happy to hear he jumped off the bridge because now black Boston didn't have to be blamed for his, for Carol Damati's murder. And I said, oh my God, that was so moving to me that she came to tell me this, right. that we had this trust. And so I wrote right. about her running down the hall to tell me and like, oh my God, thank you for giving me that poem. And it ends up being one of my better poems. I like to read it aloud at readings and anyway. Well, I look forward to yeah. experiencing that at some point. Yeah. Is it in your most recent collection? It's in, the, change? 
it's in waiting for the light cha to change. Yes, the the only full length collection of poems I've published, 2017, waiting for the light to change. Page, I don't know what page it's Prolific on. Press, right? Exactly. Thank you. Uh, I have, I now have my own website. A, a uh, an arts and ed student from this year, Claire Murray, uh, helped me put together a, a really nice website. Okay, so anyway, there are a bunch of poems of that sort in the book, like personal experience poems. And against interweaving the time-place yeah. connection. Beautiful. Exactly. And, and important um, always, and particularly now more than ever, to have mm -hmm. wise, brave voices like yourself to also speak to systemic racism. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah. And um, wow. So. Every time I ask for a few minutes of your time, I steal a few more <laughs> because you're uh, just um, you're a gentle warrior and you're a real creative educator. And I feel really opened up every time I, I speak with you. So thank you for doing that. And I'm going to try and um, not just steal this for my own personal growth. I will try to share it and I'll let you know how I can figure out trying to share this because I am a novice with tech and I'm just trying to redo my website to try and put videos like that up there. So I will let you know and um, you can screen it and give me feedback before it goes public. Viral. No, let's not use the word viral. Niche? Oh, yeah. Is it niche or niche? Niche? Niche, niche, I don't even know. My mom was always correcting me on it so often that I don't know the correct version, but bless her. Right. She tried. <laughs> yep. Well, Jess, you are very generous and I really enjoy talking to you and I appreciate your good questions. Thank you. My pleasure. I will let you know kind of how this turns out. Uh, have a lovely time voyaging where you're voyaging the next couple of days and we'll be in touch. Yes, we will. Thank you. Try the podcast. Third time's a charm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll get Take care. Bye-bye, Jess. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you.